This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mets fans, welcome to episode 259 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and thank you for joining us on this episode, the Mickey Calloway edition. Doesn't that name sound like a like a tough guy from a 1940s movie, like a gangster movie, Mickey Calloway? I love it. It's such a fun name to say. Uh, but yeah, Mickey Calloway is the 21st manager of the New York Mets. He's coming to us from the Cleveland Indians, and what is, uh, he had what was just such a delightful press conference, he seemed so affable and fun, and just really a a breath of fresh air, so I'm very excited, I know lots in the Mets community are very excited, especially after that press conference, so we reached out to a sister SB Nation site, Let's Go Tribe, they obviously cover the Cleveland Indians for SB Nation, and wanted to see if one of their staffers wanted to come on and talk about Mickey Calloway. We were thrilled that Merritt Rolfing decided to answer that call, and he spoke with myself and Chris McShane about the new Mets manager. So uh, let's check that out right now. Well, folks, we are 
in the first uh, 36 hours or so of the Mickey Calloway era of Mets manager managerhood managerdom I don't even know how you would how you would quantify that uh into a word but we are we have a new Mets manager and uh he was the former pitching coach for the Cleveland Indians and so we thought it would be good to reach out to somebody who knows a little bit more about the Mets new manager than we do so let's go tribe is the SB Nation Cleveland Indians site and we have on the line tonight Merritt Rolfling Rolfing, I promised I was going to get that right, and I messed it up. Merritt Rolfing from Let's Go Tribe to talk with us about the Mets new manager. How are you tonight, Merritt? You butchered my name like everyone else does, so I'm yeah, I'm yeah. But I, I try and be, I try and be better than that. You know, that's, that's not all right. cool. I, mean, I, I expect it at this point. It's lots of L's and H's and O's and stuff. It's that's an oddball. So it's all great though. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So uh, Chris and I just basically want to get you know our base, your basic impression first of all about uh, Callaway. What was what was his uh, what was his overall impression that he left on you? during his time with the tribe? Well, uh, Mickey Callaway. All right, so when you think of a pitching coach, usually your mind reaches back to someone like Dave Duncan or Don Cooper or Leo Mazzoni back in the 90s with the Braves, right? And they all seem to have a specific thing that they, like, preach to their their pitchers, whether it was – Mazzoni wanting guys to really hammer the lower outside corner, um, really expand the zone. We saw that very well with Greg Maddox. Or uh, Dave Duncan really preaching the sinker and pounding the ball down in the zone and that sort of a thing, I suppose. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously it's hard to kind of condense a, a, pit, a pitching coach's entire kind of lesson into a sentence, but whatever. Callaway, I never really got that sense that he ever really – kind of preached a specific thing. And, I mean, everything I, – I've written about him so many different times, about what he does, because I, 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 I like trying to understand pitching. It's a very interesting part of the game because it's so – it's the, the very center of the whole – the mental game of, of, between batter and pitcher. And being able to kind of capture that is um, – I don't know. It's fascinating to me. And Callaway never really – gave me an idea that he was ever telling his guys to do a certain thing, but instead to do what they do the best, I suppose. He, everything I've read about him was he was a good like psychologist or a psychiatrist for his pitchers. He had a lot of young pitchers with the Indians. Um, Trevor Bauer, obviously, being the most headstrong and interesting, but Carlos Carrasco had some kind of uh, maturity issues early on when, uh, when Callaway came up. Uh, Corey Kluber turned from the most average pitcher in history to... Well, Corey Kluber, uh, same thing with Mike. Mike Clevenger is on on the cusp, I think, of making a huge leap. Uh, none of these guys have anything really in common, except they all do throw a lot of curveballs. Indians have thrown more curveballs than any other pitcher in or any other team in baseball. Um, whether that's just because Corey Kluber happens to throw a great one, or same thing with Trevor Bauer, that was the pitch that really got him drafted. So to answer your question, I think he just. He was a good sounding board, I suppose, for getting young pitchers used to the the hard parts of 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 Major League Baseball. I suppose I don't think that the Indians, or, or rather, I do think that the Indians have a a grander, I suppose, structure in developing pitchers than just Mickey Callaway. Uh, but I think he's kind of the capstone to it all. They get there and they have this kind of calming influence to. 
help them kind of ease into it. I got to go to an Orioles game this past summer when, uh, when they were playing the Indians, and I got to watch Clevenger uh, warm up. And just seeing Callaway sit behind him, it's not really say much to him while he was warming up. But like every now and then, like he'd he'd just like you know say a word or something. Clevenger would look back and nod, and then I don't know, make some little adjustment or something. Rather, do other pitching coaches do that? I don't know. Uh, I don't <laughs> spend a lot of time watching pitching coaches got uh, you know warm up with their pitchers. But he just seemed so involved in the um, just in every bit of what his, his pitchers were doing in a in like a you know in the in a helpful sense, like telling them this do this a little bit better. So. I think that's that's what he does. He's kind of just a psychologist, uh, like a psychiatrist for the for the players, and just someone they can talk to and work with to get better and be their own best selves, I suppose. You know, we watched the uh, introductory press conference yesterday, and he came off as an incredibly likable guy, very affable and positive, and all that. You know, I know that pitching coaches tend to not get a lot of time in front of the microphone. But is is that typically how you saw him as well? Did he come off as uh, exuberant and positive when in Cleveland as he did yesterday? I would I would say, I wouldn't say exuberant really, simply because I think he obviously had to take a backseat to Terry Francona. But I also think Terry Francona is going to surround himself with guys who are affable and interesting and fun and a good conversationalist. Because this is the guy he talked to most of the game anyway. <laughs> you figure he's going to be the best conversationalist on the team. But no, I would say that is the kind of guy from everything I've seen of Callaway, just the way he, he never seemed you know, mad on the mound like when, when his pitchers were blowing it. He seemed to make a joke every now and again, kind of calmed him down. Yeah, I would I would say that would be a good way to describe him. He's definitely a, um, no, he just seems like, yeah, like just a nice guy, I suppose. In addition to being, I don't know, he does something with pitchers. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Chris? Hmm, well, I guess... I would, you know, just touching on a couple of the points there, we've been very used to now former Mets pitching coach uh, Dan Worthen, who was around for a long time, mm-hmm. became, you know, known for the Worthen slider. And it was really awesome when it was working for everybody who was healthy at, at a certain time. Uh, but <laughs> that combination of working and healthy didn't really last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything you've said is. It's sort of just a contrast. Obviously, he's a lot younger um, than than Terry Collins or Dan Warthen. Uh, you know, he's taking over the role, of course, that Terry Collins had. But it's just interesting to me to hear that that sort of individualism that he has with these guys. And I, I think that's something he, he really tried to emphasize in the press conference was, you know, this is about the players as people and you know, understanding things are going to come up and we'll get through them as a team, but everybody's their own individual. Um, it, that that focus is coming through in what you're saying about him. But Warden was a guy who we, like, never heard speak. Uh, well, I, I think the only thing I can say I remember him saying publicly uh, was an infamous line when he referred to John Maine as a habitual liar. um which may or may not have been true uh but it was just it's a weird thing to have stand out about your tenure so i think i had read somewhere that francona uh when the indians made it to the world series made a point 
of having Callaway come up with him for a press conference, I think, either at the end of the ALCS or the beginning of the World Series, something like that. Um, I was not particularly tuned in to that. Do you, you know, so do you have any recollection of what that story was or, you know, what, what that was that, like? Cause I mean, that sounds that so it, foreign to us. Right. No. And I think part of that too is just, I mean, and then that's kind of what you're going to be getting with Callaway too is, I mean, he's obviously he's been working. They didn't know each other before he became the, the pitching coach uh, for the Indians. But they become seemingly very close friends. So that's kind of what you're going to be getting with Callaway. It's kind of a, well, you're getting obviously a Francona protege. But that's what that's what Francona does too, right? Like he he never takes credit for what his teams do. He he never did when he was in Boston. He never has when he's been in uh, when he's been in Cleveland. Uh, and I think that's just what you saw with him bringing Callaway up to the the podium with him because he knows that Callaway is the one working closer with uh, his. With the pitches, and he's a large part of the reason why they were where they were, right? Yeah. So I would say it's it's more it's it's I mean it's that it's, and I think that's what you're what you're going to get with Callaway now is, I mean I I hate saying he's a player's manager or isn't I think he's just a guy who recognizes he's dealing with a bunch of grown men. Well, to a degree, it's a bunch of grown <laughs> men who never grew up and they go to summer camp every summer and play with their friends, but. You know, he, he deals with these grown men, and he, he wants them to succeed on, on, of their own merits. And um, I think you're going to be getting that with Callaway, too. The, one, the only worry I would have is, and I think this is probably going to be something that will be run with, especially in the always delightful New York press, is Nick, Mickey Callaway can't be the pitching coach, obviously, right? He's, right. Like, this is going to be a situation where, like in football, when a great offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator becomes a head coach, Will it go well, or will you have, well, in New York terms, will you have Rex Ryan, right? Will you have a situation where it's just he isn't, he doesn't care about one side of the ball? And you can't do that with, with baseball. And I don't right. think that you're going to be getting that. Like, I don't think he's going to do some magic touch on the on the New York uh, rotation. I don't think they really need a magic touch, to be quite honest with you. They're incredibly talented. I mean... The fact that Matt Harvey is is the, probably their biggest question mark, I think, if anything, is awesome because if he gets it right again, you know that that I think that rotation is going to be dynamite next year. And I don't think it'll all be Callaway. I think it'll be health, obviously. But um, man, I love I your optimism. <laughs> no, I love yeah, your optimism I, about the Mets pitchers. That's uh... well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm eternally out optimistic. I suppose I don't know. I, I don't know where it comes from. I'm an Indians fan. It's very strange. I know. Uh, but well, yeah, I, I have a question about that. Um, Sorry, Chris. Did you have something you wanted yeah, to say? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll come back to it. Uh, what I was going to say is, you know, there's um, one of the things that Terry Collins was, was really knocked for during his tenure as a, as the Mets manager is his bullpen management and how he just, I mean, destroyed people's arms on a regular basis. And uh, I think that, you know, for a lot of fans, we're sitting here thinking, oh, thank goodness somebody who's going to consider the pitchers. Uh, I, I don't think anybody was necessarily thinking that he was going to ignore the uh, the offense, and I know you weren't suggesting that at all. But I was wondering if um, if Francona, you think, had any particular tendencies when handling a pitching staff, and if those tendencies could possibly be attributed back to Callaway. Um, I mean, Francona's always kind of had his guys, I suppose. Um, at least with the Indians. They always just happen to be really, you know, really good, especially the last couple of years. I mean, he's 
a good question. I don't know. He had this propensity to keep on putting Zach McAllister in games. And even though I wrote I wrote articles about him maybe being good, he was never all that good. So that always bothered <laughs> me. But aside from that, no. I mean, I don't think he really had any bad tendencies but in particular. I'd say the biggest knock I always had on him was maybe riding Corey Kluber too much at times. Like, he doesn't always have to throw 100 pitches. Right. But he just had him throw, even if he, you know, just kind of throwing a bit of a clunker out there and he's only going six, five or six innings, he still just kind of left him in there. Um, again, it's very easy to be, to manage a good bullpen when you have a good, or to manage a bullpen well, rather, when you have a good bullpen. And the Indians have had anywhere from decent to great Francona's entire tenure. Like, even when he came up, came there, Cody Allen was their fourth or he was the the fourth guy on the depth chart pretty much when it came to the bullpen and because they still had the you know the Chris Perez and Vinny Pestano. I say you know, like no one really remembers these areas. This is when this is me paying too much oh, attention I, to the Indians. No, yeah, no, no. I, I remember Vinny Pestano as somebody yeah. who plays in a fantasy league that includes holds. Oh, okay. Like, well, that guy that yeah. guy was legit for a couple oh, of years. He was, he was a <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote several articles about why why is Chris Perez closing? This guy is terrible. But uh no, uh I think it really, again, it'll come back to the pitchers. I don't think, I mean, I don't think uh, Callaway is going to abuse anybody, but the Indians, like I said before, they did also have a structure behind Callaway of development of pitchers that led to, I think, stronger arms. I mean, you'll, you'll read a lot about their, you can, you can if you go look for their, their use of more advanced techniques for pitcher training. I mean, uh Trevor Bauer is popularized a lot with weighted ball and plyometrics and the, the extreme long toss. But that's not just a Trevor Bauer thing. I mean, I watched Mike Clevenger do the exact same warm-up routine that Trevor Bauer does when I, when I went to go see him pitch, and no one really talked about that anymore. But the Indians are very forward-thinking when it comes to pitching, pitcher development and pitcher kind of rehab. I don't know where the uh, Mets sit in that. I know they've had some terrible – I know that, you know, I, I still pay attention to New York, uh, you know, sports media because I, I don't know I grew up around there and I know that they have a much pilloried uh, medical staff I don't know whether that's going to change down the line but I do know they need better pitching it'll be it'll be very easy to blame Mickey Callaway for problems that the I mean they didn't have a very good bullpen this year did they not particularly no <laughs> no yeah okay yeah so I mean no. it, it's hard to be a good bullpen manager when you don't have a good bullpen I suppose if you have five good arms then you're not going to lean on anyone or develop any tendencies because you can just kind of reach into a hat and pull out Brian Shaw or someone like that. I mean, so. Right. Well, one thing that I'm kind of curious about, and and I don't know that this isn't really so much of a question, but just kind of building on this stuff. uh, If the Mets get into a situation where guys are healthy or healthier than expected and they have one or two starters who might be hesitant to go to the bullpen, I think that's where somebody, you know, if his personality that we saw, and it's, we understand it's easy to like fall in love with a guy uh, who's just being introduced. He hasn't done anything wrong yet. Uh, you know, every manager is going to make moves that lose games that fans are going to get upset about. You know, sure. we, we know that's coming. But if if the impression he made uh, is how he goes into the season, you have a guy like Zach Wheeler who we've talked a lot about. Uh, on the podcast and written about on the site. You know, he's a guy whose arm just doesn't seem like it's capable of throwing 150 innings a year, and that's mm-hmm. not even really the goal uh, as a starter. But the, even that seems like 
it's not something that's attainable. So I, I'm just curious to see if, you know, the fresh face and, and voice and everything uh, can convince somebody like Wheeler uh, to make the move to the bullpen and maybe become that kind of arm, uh, an extra good reliever. Uh, and, and then on the point about, you know, overall uh, pitching development and everything, obviously the Mets have had a really good pipeline to get guys up to the majors and have them succeed. Uh, you know, Michael Fulmer had come up through the system and has flourished with the Tigers, um, which, you know, fortunately for you. I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, he did come from the Mets. Yeah, that was a Cespedes deal, wasn't it? Yeah, was yeah. It? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, but fortunately for you, it hasn't really hurt things too much. Uh, no, I mean, the Tigers stink, so, I mean, he <laughs> right. can be yeah, as good as he wants. I don't care. He's great yeah. on, a, on a terrible team that yeah. is, is only going deeper into a rebuild with Ron Gardenhire. Brian, I'm turning this into an AL Central podcast now. <laughs> oh, what's going on? Yeah, sure. Let me tell you about Ron Gardner. No, go on. Former but Matt yeah, Ron Gardner. It, it's kind of all a long-winded way for me to just say that, like, it, it, the it, the willingness to just look at things a new way is exciting, and I think we would have felt that way with any manager, but somebody coming in and being that excited about it uh, about getting the job, you know, getting his first opportunity to manage his own team. Uh, in the press conference, he he made a reference to, you know, someday I want to be where Sandy Alderson is. And then quickly backed that up with, like, way down the road. But, <laughs> you know, somebody who, who has developed his career in baseball and, and wants more uh, on day one, it's, it's all really encouraging. And it's just... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I was really getting to a question here. Well, I mean, well, to, to your first, I mean, it sounded like you were asking half a question with the Zach Wheeler point. Like, do you think he'll be able to kind of convince guys who are hesitant? And I'll say this. He did do it twice just this year. Uh, Danny Salazar was, you know, bouncing back and forth, having health issues, not being able to maintain velocity, this and that, the other thing. And eventually, in the second half, he did get moved to the bullpen kind of a combination of, I mean, I, I, they actually did it with Carlos Carrasco, as a matter of fact. He was actually able to, I and I, he had to have been in the room for these conversations, right, because he is the pitching coach, to convince Carlos Carrasco to go to the bullpen, uh, be, be great in the bullpen. And then, and then he eventually came back, was healthy enough, and has now, for the last two years, been a great starter for them. And if you look at his numbers out of the bullpen when he first, when he first, or rather, back in the rotation. I mean, he had a you know a sub three ERA. He was he was incredible. Um, he's managed a. I would put probably I would put Zach Wheeler probably in the same basket as say Mike Clevenger, someone who is fighting to get into a already pretty stacked rotation, and he had earned it. He had earned it uh, his role in the rotation just by pitching very well for multiple months. But uh, they didn't need him there, so they so Callaway was again able to convince him to happily go back to the bullpen for the good of the team. And I can't imagine this will be a thing that he wouldn't be able to do with the Mets. I mean, once he gets to know these guys, and maybe that'd be a part of it too, is he, you know, he kind of came up with all these young guys with the Indians, especially. Um, so maybe that'll be a, uh, a bit of a learning curve. No, I, I don't think that'll be a real problem. Again, he's a personable guy who is able to, 
you know, work with guys to put them in, in the best place to succeed. And I think he'll be able to convince Mets players of that too. Because you know, I mean, obviously they want to succeed too. They've had a, they've had back to back very disappointing years. Yeah. Um, what was your second? What was the second part of what you were saying? <laughs> well, I, I, think, I have a question. If, if you're if you're in the weeds there, Chris. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> but, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so you know, one of the things that Alderson has spoken about uh, and was reported at the end of the season was that part of the team's frustration with Collins over the last couple of seasons, and this is, I think, a problem always, but when you're winning, well, let's put it this way, when you're expected to be bad and you're bad, or when you're expected to be good and you're good, these things kind of get swept under the rug a little bit, but when you're expected to be good and you're bad, people take notice of the things that you do that don't necessarily jibe with the front office. And the front office, especially Alderson, is very, very uh, statistic, sabermetrically inclined. And uh, Collins was, I'd say, as far from that as most people get, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there was, a, I know, a reluctance for him to to do things like construct the lineup differently and and just you know pay attention to sort of the more sabermetric principles in uh, in the game. And so I know that the Indians are a very forward thinking team. Do you know if um, you know? Obviously. If you're part of an organization like that, you're going to somewhat reflect that. But do you know if Callaway has any particular affection or fondness for advanced statistics, or do you think that he's more of a, uh, as, as we said before, guy. sort of a traditional guy? Yeah. Um, I'll, I mean, I look at it two ways. Again, he was he's a guy who worked with Trevor Bauer rather than against Trevor Bauer because Trevor Bauer famously, you know, he he is the guy who shook off Miguel Montero in his in his first ever start. He's the guy who pissed off the entire Diamondbacks front office with his quote-unquote antics because that's just how he warmed up. It's how he's always warmed up, and it was the way he thinks it will, will maintain health and develop the velocity and make him a better pitcher just in general. The, the guy, I mean, the, the guy the guy's a maniac when it comes to discussing pitching, and rather than fighting that, Mickey Callaway has worked with him to, you know, I mean, maybe tone down a little bit, but I mean, he's, 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 he's let the young man kind of go his own way, so... I would say that kind of speaks to a willingness to be forward-thinking. And again, he worked with um, Terry Francona for basically his entire major league coaching career so far, and he's seen Terry Francona do things like move Carlos Santana to the leadoff spot, as he did, which was which worked so well. Um, you know, play around you know, the, the use of Andrew Miller, which, I mean, that was that's a luxury very few teams have, is to get an Andrew Miller type of player who realizes his value goes beyond just the save. But no, I mean, again, we're talking about a guy in his what his late thirties, early forties, something he's, like that. He's forty-two. He's yeah, uh, okay. It yeah. makes me feel incredibly old that the Mets manager is only a couple years older than I am. So, oh, dude, at some point we're, we're going to get to a point where we see guys who guys sons that we saw play be managers. <laughs> I know. We? Yeah, we're we're yeah. going to get there at some point. My dad's already told me that. That's when you know you're really old. But no, I would. I mean, Frank Kona in his own way is very traditional. He has certain ways of doing things. I suppose. I mean, but he's. I, I think it's. I think. Uh, in many ways, if you look at someone like Francona's lineups, uh, the perception of tradition is actually a bit of a loyalty thing. Like he kept on putting Jason Kipnis, who was a quote unquote prototypical number two hitter, I guess, in the two hole. Even though Frank Kipnis was having a terrible year, uh, I, but I think that was more of a loyalty thing. Same thing with Michael Brantley, where he kept on putting Brantley batting third when he was obviously the fifth best hitter in, in, in on the team. Um, I, 
but as for no, I I, I don't think Callaway. I don't think that. Um, I don't think the Mets front office would have hired him if not for it. We are in an era where someone like a uh, a Terry Francona is an outlier, a, a a personality on the field as a manager who really seems to be leading the way. Whereas real, realistically, really watch how it all operates. It's much more of a symbiotic relationship with the front office. I mean, you have other you have other teams all over the place where the manager is a little more than just a puppet for the front office. Uh, I would, you know, places like, I don't know, I think the Padres, I could not tell you who their manager is. I can tell you <laughs> who their general manager is. I don't know who their manager you know, But it's just, the, the general manager has become the the, the man in charge, uh, the, the, the face of the franchise when it comes to, to management these days. And I don't think that Sandy Alderson and, and them would hire someone who's going to be it's, you know, just, uh, just stuck in the old way of doing things. It's the old way of doing things is how you lose. You can't do that. I mean, if the the uh, I don't know if the Yankees are are going to commit to a you know a, a forward thinking way of doing things, and they they have the greatest resource glut of any team in all of baseball, with the exception of maybe the Dodgers, a team who themselves hired Andrew Friedman of all people to run the show, and that's just worked out super great. So no, I, I think. This is all a long way of saying, no, I, I would not be even a little bit worried about um, Mickey Callaway doing things in an old, antiquated way because that's just not how you win baseball games. And even though they do play in New York City, the Mets are in many ways a small market team, or at least oh, this, run like one or something. I don't know. It, you know, we, 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 we all know their past money issues <laughs> due to the, the Madoff situation and whatnot. So... No, I, I I think they'll be fine. They they I think they hired the right the right guy for the job. Um, probably again, I can't help but keep on going back to the whole: can a great offensive coordinator be a great head coach? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, it's but, weird as as somebody who you know always has baseball first. Uh, that is a comparison that I've made myself. Yeah. At this point, uh, and like those guys in in football. Uh, is there anybody else who was with him in Cleveland? It's kind of rare to hear about this in baseball, I would say. But was there anybody else, like a, a bullpen coach, a bullpen catcher, anybody who was particularly tight with Callaway? I don't know if – I wouldn't be able to answer that with Dan Worthen on, mm-hmm. on our end, but well, different I'm not, times are, are different. I'm not so was there anyone sure. There? I was, but I'm, I'm just thinking about – because, I mean, Franco has been talking about – Callaway being a manager for two years now, essentially, and he always wants his guys, his friends who are also talented, to be to move up. And so I'm just kind of thinking about guys who maybe not faces I see on the field, in the, whether the third base coach or what have you. But like Scott Atchison is their major league advanced coach and staff assistant. Uh, Travis Fryman is a special assistant with the team, so they're around. And I can't help but wonder if someone like Scott Atchison might become like the pitching coach. Oh man, former or, Met. I yeah. mean, he's you know, he, he's he's like he's like sixty five <laughs> years old, so he brings a good uh, you know a, a good old man voice to the team. But my younger you brother know. used to call him Uncle Dad, and this is the perfect <laughs> nickname for him. Oh, oh yeah, Mets yeah. Twitter and the Amazing Avenue community all had tons of dad jokes and everything for his tenure. It was brief, but uh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be that, surprised. That if would go back. over. I mean this uh, genuinely. <laughs> it would go over really well, at least at, at first. Yeah. I, mean, I think I, I think he 
he's going to be a he's going to be a major league coach at some point soon. And right now he's just you know he's just an advanced scout and kind of just you know he, he's with the team, but he's just kind of not visible with the team. And I've just kind of been kind of thinking about other guys who are like that. Uh, I don't know anything about the other bullpen catchers. I don't know who Armando Camacaro is. I've never seen Ricky. I don't. I can't pronounce his last name in in real life. Maybe I have. I don't know. But yeah, maybe. Um, I would say though, if you see someone like Fryman or Addison or some of these special assistant type guys, I don't want them to take Sandy Alomar Jr. away. I'd be very sad if that happened. I want him to stay forever. He's he's a perma Indian. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, like you said, it's not something you see commonly. But we're also dealing with a guy who this is his first foray into management. This is his second job as a major league coach also. Uh, so maybe, I don't know. Right. I, see, right. seeing, seeing someone compile a pitching or a coaching staff, I don't know how they do it. I have no, I have no, like, again, Francona did not know Callaway when they first met. He was just, right. he was just suggested by someone else. He said, yeah, sure. With that. They met him and he's like, this guy's the man. Let's go with him. And it did. And it worked out very well. I guess my uh, my next question, and uh, Chris, I don't know how much more you wanna you wanna keep Merritt on the line for, but we, uh, you know, even when there is a, a coach or a manager that is beloved by his by the fans and by his players and all that, there, there's still sometimes a knock on him. You know, there's something that you recognize that they are maybe not so great at. Was there a knock on Callaway at all? Was there anything that he was sort of infamous for, or? you know, known to do that wasn't necessarily all that popular among Indians fans? I mean, I don't know, man. They've, they've won more games than any other team in the American League since, since he's been on the team, so it's hard to be mad. <laughs> that is true. And their pitching staff has only gotten – they've only gotten better every year. Um, I honestly, I don't know. It's, it's, it's – again, we're, it's, it's hard to figure out what to, what to point to with – I – if anything, I – I love him the most for how much he's pushed curve. I love curveballs. I think it's a neat pitch, and it's just it's fun in an era of ever increasing velocity to see guys just flail at curveballs. You know, I mean, we we saw them, you know, make make the fool of Aaron Judge time and time again in the ALDS until it all went to hell. Uh, and that was all curveballs, man. It was super great. They did it last year too. I it's no, I, again, I I can't really think of anything. Everything has worked out for them so much in the last four years since he's been with the team. So no, it's it is honestly, it seems a little hard to say. I can't think of a knock of what he does uh, on him. Um, yeah, no, he seems that's like a, he just he just that's go a ahead. good thing for us to hear. You know, it's yeah, a good no, thing. exactly, yeah, yeah. I got me thinking about it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he, he he kept them too healthy. I can save faces constantly, man. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I want some variety in my life. Oh. Be a Mets fan for five minutes, and you'll uh, you'll, <laughs> you'll get plenty. Teams, you yeah, know. you have plenty of pitching variety. Yeah. Uh, Chris, anything else to add? No, no. I think that sums it up. Um, I've learned that the Indians don't have a bullpen catcher who goes around the country setting records for amounts of food he can eat. What? Oh, man, you be a Mets fan? Did they have that? <laughs> yes. Dave Racanello. Uh, I believe it's 17 cheesesteaks. I believe that, so, that, yes. That almost sounds low. Maybe it was 27. It was. It, I think it ended at a 7, but some absurd amount of cheesesteak that he ate in one uh, series in Philadelphia, just as an example. 
I mean, I went down there one time to eat cheesesteaks, and I swear I ate seven in about 25 minutes. They go down smooth, but that's a lot of cheesesteaks. They do. He first came on. I made a. Go ahead, Chris. What a hero. Oh, yeah, no, I'm just going to mention my uh, t- <laughs> 24 hour trip to Philly in which I exclusively ate cheesesteak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how you should look. I, I was proud of that. What I was going to say was I first became aware of Dave Racanello, bullpen catcher, because when David Wright was like the hottest thing in New York baseball, Racanello used to carry his PS2 around for him. Like that, that, that was what he was known for. Like, like he, he was Wright's traveling video game buddy, and like we would pack his PS2 so they could play games on the road. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'll I mean, get some bullpen catcher jerseys now. <laughs> I, I remember thinking, you know, because Wright's about my age. I, remember, I was like, you know, 22, 23, thinking, man, I wish I had a friend who would travel with me and bring video games to play. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> seemed like a pretty sweet gig at the time. Yeah, right. Jeez, what a great. I mean, bullpen catcher is like, you know, it's like backup kicker. There's a, that's not even a real role. But bullpen catcher is a great job. Or is it the worst job? All the time. Or is it the worst job? That's a good question. Because question. We want to do a lot of wild guys. Yeah. You're just constantly squatting. You don't get the glory. You never get to hit the ball. You know. Eat 27 cheesesteaks though. Yeah. (laughs) No one complains about you having a stomachache the next day because there's another bullpen catcher. Apparently. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Uh, A friend of mine used to always say that the way you could tell. If you're a real fan of a team, is if you could name at least one of their bullpen catchers and at least one of their Spanish language broadcasters. <laughs> so, I have since forgotten the second Mets bullpen catcher, but I know that their Spanish announced team, at least for a long time, was Juan Alessara and Billy Barroa. So, I don't even know if you need to have a Spanish language <laughs> uh, broadcast team to tell you the truth. Do they? No, I'm looking into it. They don't. They actually don't have a Spanish language broadcast team. Northern Ohio never changed. Gee whiz. <laughs> I guess my last question for you is: you're you're a guy from Connecticut. You live in D.C. and you're an Indians fan. How does that happen? Yep. Uh, my godfather is from Erie, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in the mid '90s. And I was, uh, well, my father was a Red Sox fan. Didn't want to. Didn't want to be. I was not allowed to be a Yankees fan. Uh, <laughs> No one wanted to be a Mets fan. Uh, I wanted to not be a Red Sox fan because, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know. We all hate our fathers in some way. <laughs> uh, and, uh, no, my godfather inundated me with just gear from the, the time I was able to remember anything. And then, um, yeah, the Indians were just kick-ass uh, for most of my formative years. I mean, my favorite player of all time is still Albert Bell. Not Jim Tomey or Manny Ramirez, but instead Albert Bell for some reason. I was hoping you were going to say. Wrong with that. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to say former Met Carlos Baerga was your favorite. You no, know, I actually always had a big problem with Carlos Baerga. For really? No good reason. In my, <laughs> he became the scapegoat in my mind for all their inability to win championships in the nineties for no good reason. But I needed something in my mind, and it became Carlos Baerga being the reason. Oh, wow. That's that's the hottest that's the hottest take of the podcast so far tonight. So. You know, scapegoats, man, you gotta have them. They're important when you're young. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, anyway, uh, Merritt, where can folks find you on the internet if they want to uh, experience more of your uh, more of your tribe love and uh, wit? Well, I write at Let's Go Tribe. I uh, post a couple times a week. I also write over at Beyond the Box Score, the other SB Nation kind of sabermetric uh, site. Uh, I have a podcast called Mostly Baseball. We post 
pretty much weekly. We talked a lot about basketball last week. We're both Indians fans on it. We didn't want to talk about baseball at all. <laughs> uh, it, it made us very sad. So we just kind of talked about other stuff. Uh, and then my Twitter handle is at Merritt Rolfing, M-E-R-R-I-T-T-R-O-H-L-F-I-N-G. Um, yeah, it's a. if you see a sandwich as an avatar, that's me. It's been my same avatar since I got the account. Still love sandwiches more than anything else. So, you know, you got you to stick with what you love. Uh, as we have had national sandwich expert Ted Berg on the podcast more than once, uh, <laughs> what is what is your favorite sandwich? It's a good place to end. Wow, that's a good question. I guess we're going to be here for another 20 minutes, aren't I? Depends <laughs> on the situation. I mean, um, I guess I'd have to go with just a really good Reuben, though. You know, a nice marble rye. Uh, yeah, no, I'd go with a nice Reuben. I, I, I judge a place based on the, the quality of its Reuben if they have one and. You know, if they don't have a bad one, I'd leave. If they have a great one, I'd keep on going back. Yeah. I, I will say this in, in our further attempts to convert you to a Mets fan. They do have Rubens at City Field. There's a place. Oh, you know, never mind. It's a Bobka ice cream sandwich place down here. It's not a Reuben at all. <laughs> Rubens, though, eh? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta go to City Field. You may have me. If the Mets play the Indians next year, come up and be our guest at the po- on the podcast. We'll, we'll record a podcast live at City Field and we'll eat some Rubens. I love this idea a lot, and I'll have to do that. I know a lot of people up there. I think I might actually do that. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'll hold you to that. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. And before I get to the main topic of my segment today, which is going to be the World Series... Um, let's, let's talk about the, the new Mets manager. It's Mickey Calloway, the pitching coach from, uh, the Indians who had a lot of success at his old job when he, when he first joined on with the club, he was able to help resurrect the career of Scott Casimir, who was thought to be done from baseball. And then he ends up developing a staff that includes the likes of Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Bauer, and they've been one of the best pitching teams in in the majors over the, the past few years, and that's what made Callaway such a big candidate. And it kind of came out of nowhere for the Mets because it looked like they were going to choose between Kevin Long and Manny Acta, who no one was really excited about. And then they make sort of a splash with Callaway, even though he doesn't have a major league managing experience. It seems like the guys who who don't have experience like Callaway are more valuable nowadays because because they haven't been driven off the lot. They haven't been able to screw up yet. And and Callaway's, <laughs> I'll be clear, unless the Mets win a championship next year, Callaway's value is only going to go down because people only focus on the bad decisions. So guys that have managerial experience, like, uh, for example, Brad Ausmus, they see their, their value only drop and their experience kind of seen as a negative these days. So I think that's interesting, which is why I, I think there's some, some hidden gems in the pool of guys who have already managed and quote-unquote failed. But it's hard to argue with the with the signing of Callaway. Pretty much all the uh, people who cover the team were, were happy about this. We know the Mets have a stable of young pitchers that have uh, – not all of them have lived up to the hype, especially this past year with the with the injuries and Matt Harvey just falling off a cliff. So 
you can't blame the team for wanting a, a pitching coach as its next manager. So, uh, so we'll see how how well it works out. I thought his press conference was interesting. He was it was it was a little sugary. He was he was he's like, yeah, we're gonna make sure that all the players know that they're individual humans, and we're not gonna treat anyone like a number. And I'm just so excited to meet everyone. And 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 yeah, he should be him. He shouldn't pretend to be someone he's not. I just, you could it just you could already see the headlines from the first three game losing streak that he's trying to be friends with everyone, that he's not being hard enough on these guys. You could already see it coming, but hey, it's Mickey Callaway's team. Mickey Callaway should manage the way he wants to manage. I'm just saying <laughs> because. I guess I mean a lot of Mets fans are negative people, so that doesn't make me special. I'm I could just I could already see it coming. But look, every manager, if if a manager's too if a manager's gonna be tough, then when he loses, the criticism's gonna be he's too tough. If a manager's too friendly and he loses, the criticism is gonna be that he's too friendly. So let's just hope that the Mets spend a little money this offseason, give give Callaway the tools he needs to avoid too much of that criticism that is is bound to come after the honeymoon is over. So let's move on. We got the World Series. It started on Tuesday night in a shocking fashion, not because the Dodgers won a 3-1 decision and Clayton Kershaw finally maybe had his postseason moments, which which we knew was going to happen. If he pitched enough postseason games, eventually this guy was going to be tremendous because he is tremendous almost every time he takes the mound. So that wasn't surprising. It was surprising that the game only took two hours and 30 minutes after this this postseason has been plagued by games that have lasted way more than three and a half hours. I think three and a half hours is around the average length of game, and a lot of them have gone over that. Uh, it, it's really just been a pleasant surprise when games go under three and a half hours. And if they go long because extra innings, that's one thing. If if it's a lot of them are going long because there's uh, there's a ton of pitching changes, and there's mound visits, and the pitchers don't want to throw the pitch. But that did not happen last night, as Dallas Keuchel and Clayton Kershaw are both de- decisive. They're both working quickly, and and they're thrown in the strike zone. And that was a enjoyable game of baseball, if not the most dramatic game of baseball. Although, I think Justin Turner's game-winning home run came in the seventh inning, so that, that's, that's pretty good. It was tied pretty late in this game, as... Alex Alex Bregman and Chris Taylor both hit home runs to tie the score at one. And, yeah, then Turner won it. And uh, a lot of the talk today, because you can't really complain about the length of the game, now people are talking about the advertising, which you could tell Fox was experimenting with a lot of things. I thought it was really interesting. A lot of people didn't like it. Uh, we'll get off the bat. The first thing is that they're calling it the World Series presented by YouTube TV, which is was on the big Fox graphic. Apparently, it's been on MLB.com that they're calling it the World Series presented by YouTube TV. And this is something that's uh, not, it's not the greatest thing, but if you're a college football fan like myself, this is something that you're used to because every bowl game, even the even the big bowl games, even the, the Rose Bowl, which is probably the most famous one, has a presenting sponsor these days, so... For the World Series to have one, it's it's certainly different, but it's not uncharted territory as far as big sports events are concerned. And yeah, this is probably going to continue to be a thing, but as long as, long as the World Series comes first, there, there's not too much to complain about, at least in my opinion. I'm sure some people will be 
more upset about it. But like I said, this has kind of been a thing in other sports for a long time. So hopefully the, the jersey advertisements aren't something that follows this. But, but with the, you know, we, we see how it's going with the NBA. That could be a thing down the line. But the other topic I want to talk about with World Series advertising is this, these little 15 to 30 second spots that they play with, with the ball game in a window that they, they play during mound visits and in between at bats. And I've seen some negative backlash on social media, but... I don't mind it, especially if it's if it's taking away from longer breaks in between innings, because there's already you're, there's already dead time. Like that time is is already there. If you could start selling advertisements for this this dead time between at bats and when the the pitching coach goes to the mound or when the catcher goes to the mound, you can hit a spot there. And if you can have that take away from the time in between innings, which I don't think that was the case last night, but it's something to think about for the future. I think that's that's a great thing because then you're just turn you're you're basically getting more baseball because the the time that you're playing the spots during is it's going to be it's going to be there anyway and there's not any action happening so why not take advantage of that and put an advertisement for Wendy's chicken tenders there they looked they looked pretty delicious is that they're not a sponsor that's just saying what I was thinking during the game um but yeah, that was that was interesting. I'm I'm just surprising there was no there were so many complaints. It'd be one thing if if they the advertisement was was while they're pitching, which would be absurd. You don't want to get to that point. As 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 long as we're seeing all the baseball, I think it's it's fine that they're that they're getting uh, sponsors in during the time when nothing is happening. And probably a lot of people are complaining just because they're noticing it. Like we're we're used to having the advertisements in between innings and going to the bathroom or whatever and just ignoring it. But but when the advertisements start to show up where we don't expect them, we start to notice them more. And maybe that's what leads to the complaints because I don't think they were too disruptive to the baseball game. But that's just one guy's opinion. So that is uh, my segment for today. This has been Aaron York for the amazing... Avenue Audio Podcast and enjoy the World Series. The five greatest postseason games in Mets history might as well be referred to as the five greatest games, period. That said, here are the best of the best. And at number five, it's the fifth and final game of the 1969 World Series. Six months prior, such a happening was beyond the realm of comprehension. For a civilization that had recently witnessed such an otherworldly event as a moon landing, the Mets, National League cellar dwellers for most of their eight years, were on the brink of an accomplishment that registered as much awe as what took place some 239,000 miles from planet Earth. Up three games to one on mighty Baltimore, one last touch of fate intervened in the bottom of the sixth down three to nothing, and the Orioles attempting to take the series back to their home. Cleon Jones claimed he was hit on the foot by a Dave McNally pitch. Home plate umpire Lou DeMuro wasn't convinced until Gil Hodges brought DeMuro the ball, which had skipped over near the dugout, bearing a smudge of shoe polish. DeMuro reversed his decision and awarded Cleon Jones first base. The next ball was promptly vaulted airborne by Don Clendenin. 
three to two Orioles. Al Weiss, starting the bottom of the seventh, then hit his first Shea Stadium home run to match the Birds at three apiece. Two doubles and two Oriole errors in the eighth resulted in a five to three Mets lead. Jerry Kuzman, who had allowed four hits and three runs over the first two innings, yielded one over the final seven. The final pitch was sent deep to left field. Jones, on the warning track, began to kneel as he secured the clinching out, almost as if to acknowledge the heavens for a title distinguished as providential. The Mets, 100-1 odds to win it all when the season began, were world champions. On to number four, and it's Game 7 of the 1986 World Series. The postscript to the epic theater that occurred two nights prior was anything but a fait accompli even if you choose to believe New York was supposed to win all along. A Sunday rainout allowed Red Sox manager John McNamara to give the ball to Bruce Hurst, and he began by reinforcing his case for series MVP. The Mets relied on a lefty of their own, Sid Fernandez, to hold Boston in check, except his 2.1 hitless innings were done to limit the damage against starter Ron Darling. Like 1969's clincher, the Mets spotted their opponent a 3-0 lead, and like 69, the sixth inning was rally time. Lee Mazzilli and Mookie Wilson started with singles. Tim Tuffle walked, providing a ready-made moment for Keith Hernandez. He muscled a Hurst pitch into center field. Mazzilli and Mookie scored. The next batter, Gary Carter, looped a fly ball to right field. It couldn't be hauled in by a diving Dwight Evans. Wally Backman, pinch running, came in to score the equalizer. With beleaguered Calvin Chiraldi taking over with a tie score in the seventh, Ray Knight, soon to be series MVP, drove one over the left center field wall. New York scored twice more, so did Boston. But Daryl Strawberry's leadoff homer in the eighth all but sealed the deal. The Mets won 8-5, ensuring that Saturday's dramatics were less a footnote than a catalyst. Now to number three, the 1999 NLCS Game 5. The tightrope the Mets had walked, placing one wobbly foot in front of the other for two and a half weeks, began to fray. Walt Weiss scored on Keith Lockhart's triple in the top half of the 15th, breaking a 2-2 tie that had been maintained since the 4th. A five and a half hour tension-filled trek through the late afternoon and into a rainy evening was three outs from ending. So, too, the hypnotic, thrilling journey of Bobby Valentine's team. The Atlanta Braves thought it had the Mets dead and buried by dominating them in late September, and again when taking a one-run lead into the bottom of the eighth of Game 4, and again tonight. But here came another encounter with ghosts of miracles past. Sean Dunstan led off the bottom of the 15th and worked young Kevin McGlinchey for 12 pitches before singling up the middle. Matt Franco worked a walk. Edgardo Alfonso, in his ever-understated way, sacrificed both runners 90 feet further. With the base open, John Olrood, responsible for the entirety of the Mets' scoring up to that point, got an intentional pass. Todd Pratt somehow had the chance to reprise the dramatics of eight days earlier, yet he barely had to swing the bat. McGlinchey, obviously rattled, walked in the tying run. Robin Ventura, pained by ailments that still couldn't keep him off the field, could send everyone home, and both teams to Atlanta. His big league career included 18 grand slams, which is sixth all-time. From the crack of the bat 
to the ball landing in the space between the right center field fence and the humongous scoreboard several feet beyond, it was a grand slam in the most classic sense of the description. Except his over-exuberant teammates wouldn't allow Ventura to enjoy his home run trot. Instead, they mobbed him in the path between first and second base. The result of the play, forever a grand slam single, was of little significance to the joyous Mets. Whether the final score was 4-3 to instead of 7-3 to didn't matter. They had risen from the dead once more and lived to play another. The number two game is game six of the 1986 National League Championship Series between the Mets and the Houston Astros. Jesse Orozco's 16th inning strikeout of Kevin Bass ended such questioning of a seventh game possibility and ended a game that enclosed as much sustained tension as any in playoff history. But the end is nothing without context. Even though the Mets held a three games to two lead, the prospect of Mike Scott, the pitcher who made the mighty Mets look mortal in games one and four, loomed like a grim reaper in the hallway. Houston starter Bob Nepper was turning that possibility into probability with each passing inning. Gifted an early three to nothing lead, the lefty barely broke a sweat as he was in total command with a two-hitter through eight innings. The outs that separated the Mets for Scott dwindled. Then, similar to the sixth inning of Game 3, New York's offense solved the riddle. A Lenny Dykstra triple, a Mookie Wilson single, and a Keith Hernandez double forced Nepper's ouster. But Dave Smith was of little resistance. Two walks preempted a Ray Knight game-tying sacrifice fly. This too-close-for-comfort escape from defeat had raised the tension level that had already been on high. It would only get higher. After Roger McDowell completed his remarkable fifth shutout inning, Wally Backman drove in Daryl Strawberry in the top of the 14th. The Mets were now on the verge of celebration, two outs, in fact, from the National League pennant, until Billy Hatcher spoiled those plans. He towered Jesse Orozco's offering deep down the left field line and into the screen that substituted a foul pole. New York, though, retained equivalent amounts of resilience as their opponent, not letting the backbreaking moment serve as momentum enough to carry the Astros further. Knight's opposite field single scored Strawberry in the 16th. Two additional insurance runs came across, which turned out to be invaluable security as the Astros continued to disdain relent. They answered with two runs, and had two runners on with two outs. Kevin Bass stepped in. Like the game itself, Bass and Orozco ran the count to its peak, before Bass swung and missed on a 3-2 curve. Houston's mystic year had dried up, leaving the Mets with time to enact more miracles in the days ahead. Now to number one. And you can probably guess by now, it's Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. Down two runs and down to their last out with no one on base in the bottom of the 10th, even outrageous believers who had witnessed the miracles of 1969 and 1973 could be convinced that their team, one that unflappably prevailed 116 times dating back to opening day, could surmount this position and save the season. The rowdy, raucous, rambunctious Mets were about to go quietly into the night. 
It's replayed often, but never too often. The four at-bats that will live on in memory. First it was Gary Carter, who had tied the score at three with an eighth-inning sacrifice fly, lacing a single to left off Calvin Schiraldi. Then it was Kevin Mitchell, pinch-hitting for Ricky Aguilera, who had surrendered the Dave Henderson tie-breaking home run in the top half of the inning, delivering a base hit to center. Ray Knight, having been fitted for Goathorns for his seventh-inning throwing error that led to a Red Sox go-ahead run, fighting off an inside 0-2 pitch and placing it in front of center fielder Henderson, allowing Carter to score and Mitchell to move to third. Mookie Wilson rarely ever saw a pitch he didn't like. Ever the free swinger, he took a hack at the initial offering from Bob Stanley and fouled it away. He took several more swings, then watched a pitch go by, and Kevin Mitchell came in to score. Inexplicably, the game was tied, but there was time for another event that was even more outrageous. A ground ball fitted with Destiny's eyes. Around the glove and through the legs of Bill Buckner it went, dispatching Shea into its most exalted state. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. Please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That really does help us. You can also find the show on Stitcher directly at blogtalkradio.com or on your podcatcher of choice. We hope you enjoy the show however you listen to it. We also hope you check out amazingavenue.com for all your Mets news and information in the offseason. We have been doing a uh, season review series from all the players that played for the Mets this past year, and we'll be getting into some free agent profiles soon. It's almost AOP time. It's it's a fun time, even though it's the off season and it's a slow time of year. With Callaway's introduction to the team, it seems like uh, optimism is on the rise, and that's a good thing. And you'll find optimism analysis and more at AmazingAvenue.com. You can also follow all of us contributors on Twitter. I'm at Brian Edenap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Brian Wright is at Brian Wright 86 And Aaron is at Aaron P. York. We would also love some emails to help us get through this offseason. Podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com is the email address. Check it out. Send us emails. And we'll be back next time. I think I speak for everyone on the site when I say we are rooting for the Astros because... They have the best ex-Mets, and because uh, Curtis Granders is not even on the Dodgers World Series roster. So until next time, let's go Mets and let's go Astros.